running boom of the 70s came during simpler, pre-internet times. A unique cast of characters riding that wave came of age. You never knew who would show up, and races became household names, attracting capacity fields year in and year out. Co-hosts Ron Galuli, John Gorman, and Grant Whitney, inspired by the first runner's reunion in 2019, speak with some of the characters of the era, share their stories, and where they are today. There's something for everyone in each installment of the Runner's Reunion Podcast. Good afternoon. Uh, it's April 2nd, the day after April Fool's Day, uh, thankfully. And uh, we are back to have a second conversation, the first ever in the history of this podcast, with our guest, Bob Hodge, well-known uh, New England road racing, Mount Washington, uh, Boston, cross-country and track uh, legend. And we want to pick up the conversation where we left off last week with a little bit more on the Nike OTC marathon in 1980. And for those of us to kind of calibrate, 1980 was a really difficult year for those with Olympic aspirations um, with the U.S. boycott. And so, Bob, um, as we start this, help us uh, figure out where Nike OTC fit in the context of the marathon trials and ultimately the boycott. Can you help us kind of calibrate that in the, in the chronology of the year? Yes, I'll try. Um, so the reason I, I, I had offers to uh, invitations uh, to run in a, in a couple of different marathons, Montreal. And, uh, but when I got the letter from uh, OTC, uh, you know, I, I had been taken in by uh, Eugene, you know, in 1977, when I traveled around the country, I made a point to visit there. And um, New York City was becoming, you know, uh, uh, the one of the major races back then. They, they'd only had it through the boroughs for four years. But um, I didn't get an invite from New York, so I felt a, a little bit slighted. And, uh, you know, uh, the OTC uh, seemed to want me, and they had a good field coming. Um, Jeff Hollister... You know the Nike. He was a the uh, he was a race director along with Peter Thompson, and uh, in his book he talks about how Bill Bowerman was chastising him for not bringing in more non-Nike athletes uh, to run in the OTC uh, marathon. And I think the race was only uh, maybe third or fourth year, uh, at least at the elite level. You know, bringing people in, and so. Um, you know, but it was really a lot more incentive for the Nike athletes to run there. You know, they brought them to Sun River, this uh, resort afterwards, you know, for the Nike indoctrination. <laughs> uh, if they finished well, they got trips to Hawaii. Um, and uh, if they're contracted to Nike, obviously you want to impress the people uh, right in their, you know, home, uh, home office, so to speak. So, uh, so for me, uh, you know, be it running for the upstart Reebok there, um, you know, it was a little different and, uh, uh, I, so, but anyway, the reason I picked there was because they, uh, seemed to want me there and, uh, they had a good field and, uh, you know, everything worked out. I, I ran my personal best. I was 25 years old. Uh, I, I wanted to run. I mean, I was in the ballpark of the times that the, you know, our people who did run in the Olympic trials. I didn't run in the trials uh, back in May because I, I really didn't feel like it was uh, worthwhile. Uh, there was no team 
you know, there was not going to be an Olympic team. So I didn't see much point in running the trial and I ran Boston instead. So, uh, but the only marathon I had ever run before going to OTC was Boston. And it was only my third marathon race. So it was just a lot different. I mean, Boston, you know, you got the crowds, you know, is so much excitement and, and OTC is just sleepy. You know, there was <laughs> the races at eight in the morning uh, in September, Labor, uh, Labor Day weekend. And there's really, you know, there were just a few spectators on the entire course. Um, oh. But it was very well set up for, for fast times. And, uh, you know, and they had a pacer uh, running, you know, uh, five minute pace and everything. So, uh, yeah. So, but so Bob, help help me help me. I, I'm fascinated by that the kind of this notion of the mindset. You know, the you know, I had a coach, for example, who once said, you know, racing well, competing well is 90% mental, 10% physical. Yeah. And here you are um, in in the kind of context you've had. Anybody with the Olympic aspiration has now had their dreams shot to hell because you know the boycott's happening. So you don't even, some cases, people don't even bother to go to the trials because for what? How did you keep your head straight, uh, you know, given that huge, or presumably huge disappointment? Yeah. Um, Well, I'm not sure I actually kept my head straight, but, you know, I tried to. Um, uh, You know, I didn't know how long that this uh, running thing was going to, was going to go on. I mean, as I said before, there's really no profession. So the, other than the Olympics are trying to make a U.S. team or whatever, you know, win Boston. Th- those were just the, f- the few goals that, that we had. But then the running boom was starting down. You know, things were starting to take off. And I was beginning to make a little money. I had a, you know, I had a sponsor with Reebok. So, I mean, they were only paying me $10,000 a year. But, um, you know. You know, that was okay. I mean, between that and what I made on the roads uh, and working some in a retail shop, you know, that was that was uh, okay. I could keep things going. But at the, with the loss of a sponsor, you know, I might have to just pack it up and go back to school and, you know, get serious about a career or whatever. But I was, I was certainly willing to put that off as long as possible. <laughs> uh, you know, I was in no hurry to get married and settle down and all of that, uh, you know, so like I said, I was 25, it was my third marathon. And, uh, you know, the future was so bright, I had to wear shades. No, I love it. That's a great line. Yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, things were looking up. So, you know, that ended up being my my personal best. So you don't know how things are going to work out. And of course, Uh, you thought that that would not be your person. You thought you knew you could go faster, right? I mean, isn't that the classic case? Most people think that oh, when they yeah, run a well, PR that. Yeah. Yeah. Why even continue if you can't go faster, right? Yeah, exactly. But, but I got injured uh, in November of 1980 and I was supposed to run in Fukuoka that year. That was my prize for, uh, for finishing second at uh, Nike OTC. Uh, but when I got injured and couldn't go, uh, they, I said, well, can I take the trip next year? And they said, no. So <laughs> I oh. wound up getting uh, a belt buckle prize, you know, oh, Nike geez. OTC belt buckle. That was my prize when I ran my personal best. Uh, the following oh, yeah, year uh, was so when who, they, they they began now uh, with the prize money. So I uh, kind of missed out there. No, but who's, uh, who was coaching you uh, at this time? <clears throat> Be interesting because uh, you were running, yeah. for, you, had, you had squires all those years. 
you started running for Reebok. Were you still being coached by Squires or did Reebok have a coach? I or, still ran with you... the Greater Boston. I was still running for Greater Boston. Uh, this was a V4 national clubs like Athletics West had just had started, but they were the first. So, you know, uh, normally if you ran for a club club like Greater Boston, you, you had to be from the area. You, you couldn't run for Greater Boston and live in California, you know. They didn't enforce it necessarily. You know, if you were here as a student and you lived here and you compete for a local club, uh, but that, that was quickly changing. So, but I, I was shading still with Greater Boston. So I would go up to Boston College and, and do the workouts and everything as I carried on as I had before. But Coach Squires, uh, you know, Coach Squires was coaching me uh, more on, a, um, you know, uh, just more like a mentor. Like he wasn't writing day-to-day -day workouts or doing anything like that. We just go up to the track and we just talk. We go to the Elliott Lounge and we just talk. You know, I'd tell him what I was doing. He'd recommend things. Uh, but when I went to the track down in Norwell, because uh, I was living down the South Shore then, I usually had a friend of mine come over and time me and write my times down. And, you know, he would tell me, man, this is like having my own racehorse. <laughs> uh, so, so that's how I did it, you know. Uh, so the coaching so was, uh, was never, like, you know, so much hands on, you know, not with me. I know Coach Squires had a different relationship with some of his other athletes. So do you think, um, so you, you described it as a mentor. Did, so was there something about, do you think it was something about that, you know, I don't need to ride roughshod on this guy. I, I just need to be there if he seeks advice or if I think he's going the wrong way, uh, you know, kind of training. Was that kind of? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, coach had a regular day job and, you yeah. know, he was coaching some other athletes more closely. I mean, it, that was part of it. I always felt like I got more from Squires on a personal level, like, uh, mm. you know, fatherly kind of advice, you know, mm. like when I did my cross country trip in 77, he, when I finally got back, uh, he, he, the first time I saw him when I got back, he said, I'm glad you decided to stop picking daisies and get back here and, and get serious. You know, I hope you go back to school. He kept chiding me to go back to school, you know, and quick, what are you doing? You know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I, it was as much that as far as, uh, I think the working with the group, you know, so many good athletes, Bill Rogers, Greg Meyer, Alberto for a while when he was just a kid. Um, you know, Pete Fitzinger, there's just too many to even uh, touch on. You know, that's, we all brought the best out in each other, even each though other. we were teammates and we compete for some team titles. We wanted to beat each other. I mean, oh. Randy Thomas and I, you know, we, we had the Fitchburg Lowell thing going. Ah. which is always talking trash and <laughs> uh, there's nobody I've wanted to beat more than my own teammates I think well that's got to be that's just be because something. the next week we knew we were going to hear about it you know we were right. out running so so just to kind of set the stage for for our listeners you know so in 1980 you were 24 at 24 25 you know you're under yeah, 210 25 in August of 80 right and so then 1981 um, you run under 29 minutes for 10K and you ran a 215. And then uh, nine, or 20, age 26, 1982, um, you've you know, run a, a 
10K in 28.44 and a 2.11 in the marathon. Yeah. So those are, you know, so those two years-ish, 18 months, two years, yeah. 81, were pretty productive on, times. It took me a while to come back from being injured in November of 80. So I spent three months uh, barely running. I was, uh, and I do talk about that in the book. And uh, I was swimming. I pretty much uh, created my own rehab program because uh, the doctors I went to weren't very helpful. Uh, I remember I went to one guy who gave me an electronic muscle stimulator. So the injury I had was a doctor in the groin mm -hmm. area. Oh yeah. And I had a tear. And so you gotta be real careful with it. And the guy also gave me some neoprene trunks, which actually helped. They were like, kind of like the tights that everybody wears these days. It was made of like the scuba material. Uh, so I wore those for the support. And I was able to get my running back together a little, but it was a lot of it was just getting the strength back. And it, it, it took a while. And I don't know really if my body was ever really the same. Uh, I really feel like good physical therapy is the thing that is so important that we just didn't have uh, access to necessarily as an athlete. You know, some people did have the best sports medicine, but it cost money, you know? So exactly. I mean, exactly. Uh, and, and I, I was kind of helpless who to go to. So I, like I said, I just developed this whole program. I actually went to a guy named Bob Backus, who was an Olympian in the hammer throw. And he has a gym in Marshfield, Mass. And, and he put me on a routine. I was doing, you know, all kinds of weightlifting, uh, powerlifting and stuff. And, uh, it felt good. It felt your whole body just get stronger. And so that helped. So 82 was really a good year. Um, like I say, I probably overdid it. I ran a lot of races. Uh, I ran well on the track. I finished fifth in the national. Uh, that was my best finish on the track in the nationals. And uh, at 10K. Very, yeah, at 10K. It was a very hot day. I was one place ahead of Pat Porter in that race when he was just a kid. Craig Virgin won that, won that one. So, and it, then I ran in the USSR meet. So that was kind of cool. And is that one of the last years that they did the US USSR meet? Yeah, they didn't need they didn't even actually do it every year, you know, they just did it random times. And okay. So it was in Indianapolis. It was a, the the uh, TAC had moved their headquarters there and then they they built the track facility. And that was the first event that mm. was held in the facility. And um, is is 1982 so again you're roughly 26 maybe you know soon turning 27 in the year uh was that your was that the year you made your first trip to japan i actually made the first trip in 80 uh okay. i went to a 30k race um in ome and uh they have an exchange with the boston marathon so the first two americans in boston are invited to go to ome and the people who put that race on and uh, other uh, uh, people from Japan used to come over every year for Boston. And I met, met those folks at the Elliott, so uh, okay. at the Elliott Lounge. So uh, I got to know them, had a relationship with them. Uh, we always had to bring them uh, Johnny Walker. <laughs> that was our gift, we were told. <laughs> And they, you know, running in Japan is fantastic, and it's, it was always a great trip. Yeah, and and that and that's what where I was wanting to go with this a little bit is how would you, in the time, the snapshot of the time, compare distance running 
in Japan, its notoriety, et cetera, uh, compared to the States? And what do you think accounted for the difference? Because I'm guessing it's, I mean, my sense is it was never the same, but so I'm just trying to, you know, kind of well, orient. Well, here it's the wild, wild west and everybody look out for yourself. You know, there, um, it was almost like uh, a lot of nations that support their athletics teams. You know, Japan had a corporate culture and they had corporate teams. And so if you were good, you could get on one of these corporate teams and you would, you know, work for the company, but, you know, ostensibly your job would be running. Um, so they did everything to facilitate your running. Uh, some of the best uh, athletes at the time, Seiko, um, the Soul Brothers, they all came through this kind of system. Um, but the culture there is, you know, marathon running just became a thing uh, after the war. Uh, I think that they found that they could excel at it. And, um, you know, as opposed to track and field. Uh, and, and then they uh, also have this Ekaden relay, uh, postal relay. That's even more popular than the marathon racing. So, but it is a big time sport over there. You, we arrived at the airport. They had media there taking your picture, like to meet you. And, you know, it was like you were a professional athlete. <laughs> you know, that didn't happen to too many athletes in the States, unless they were coming back from the Olympics with a gold medal or something like that. So well, what was the uh, whole, it, it uh, was a blast. Yeah. What was the whole background on Haji-san? What is that? I'll start and yeah, who started it? And well, uh, I um, <laughs> after I won, I won the Beppu Marathon in 1982, February of 1982. Um, uh, you can actually watch a video of it on YouTube. And uh, anyway, when I after the race, I got this uh, videotape, uh, it was like a Betamax back then, so I bought myself a Sony Betamax. And uh, I had a few tapes, you know. So one day, uh, George Malley, uh, infamous Malmo, uh, stayed at my house, you know, which was not uh, too uncommon. He'd come up to Boston to train. He was a New Balance runner. And uh, we left him home alone, you know. And, uh, and when I got home that day, yeah, the minute I walked in the door, he said, Haji-san, Ichiban. And uh, from then on, from him calling me, you know, Hajisan, it just became kind of a, a nickname. Uh, but it, throughout the entire, you know, two plus hours of this video, they say Hajisan Ichiban about a hundred times. So, and that's the only thing we could really understand. Uh, Ichiban is number one. I was wearing number one. I had the fastest time going in. And uh, so, but it was so great to win a race there. Um, I, I recognize. Yeah, I rec I recommend the video, folks, and you can find it on YouTube. Uh, yeah. It is very, it was a, a very close race. So what happened was the race goes out and back, and most races in Japan used to do that. They follow the IWF rules right to the letter. And we're uh, going out. We ran 104 and a half, so we're on 209 flat pace. And then we turned around, and we were running into the wind that had been pushing us on the way out. So uh that slowed us down <laughs> and i i had a significant lead at uh 25k and i was just running along i was daydreaming i was in the middle of all these buses i had people waving little just flags at me and, and I, I don't know where my head was at but i got caught the Japanese runner nishimura caught me and 
he got about a hundred yards on me and I thought, this is it. But then I saw him start to kind of almost be staggering ahead of me. So I caught him at 40 kilometers and I beat him in the last 2K by uh, seven seconds. So it was a, it was a very close race. I, I was wondering, Bob, if if maybe you kind of got lulled into complacency because of all the fumes from the motorcycles and the buses right. and the and well, the trucks. I mean, it just uh, yeah. Fortunately, uh, Beppu is on the southern island Kyushu, Japan. It's right on the ocean. Okay. Uh, there are these tall cliffs, which they actually show the cliffs a few times during the video. Um, there was a big. It's a big place for hang gliders, and it was also there was a. Uh, some uh, monkey, uh, some animal, some monkeys on this hill, and they they show the monkeys, uh, monkey mount. They call it Monkey Mountain. Uh, anyway, so there are you know, they they try to make it interesting for the viewers, and, but they do get capture you know the entire marathon race as well. Now, language being a barrier, do you have a sense as to because you you've you've alluded to this before. Do you have a sense that in the TV coverage, again, back in the early 80s, did, did they, they covered the race, right? And not the personalities per se, or the, you know, charity well, not being a big thing, but, but is it, was it your yeah. sense, even with the language barrier that it was, they well, were this, focused this, on uh, the competition? Yeah. yeah, this particular race, you know, in order, they, they bring in a handful of foreign runners. The, the big thing is there's only about, you know, at the most 500 runners in these races, you had to run like 230 just to get into Fukuoka. Uh, I don't know what the qualifying was for Beppu, but, and, and these were men's races. Women's marathons, they ran women's races. There, there were almost, there were no mixed races at that time in Japan. All, all races were separate. So it was a little easier to, you know, so when we came in, uh, one thing they did in Beppo was uh, they had a film crew. They followed us around. So we were on a version of a show like Good Morning America, Good Morning Japan. So all the foreign athletes were on it. Myself, Randy Thomas, Grenville Wood, a runner from Australia, the Norwegian runner. Uh, can't think of his name. But anyway, uh, so we were on the show and they asked us to uh, shoot a basketball. So they had us go out and shoot a basketball. Then they gave us a, it's like a long division problem, do this problem. And then they, uh, after the race, they tried to have us do these same tasks. Like, let's see how well he does now, you know? And so it was just a weird, bizarre thing that they, they were trying to, you know, make entertainment also out of the race. Um, so that, that was a little weird. Let's see, we, it, and so Beppu is 82. And how many more trips uh, competition-wise, or how, how long was that chapter in J Japanese chapter yeah. for you? Yeah, so I won Beppu in February, and then uh, I, I got an invitation to run in Fukuoka uh, in December of 82. So I put a lot of my focus uh, throughout the summer. Uh, I did... I did uh, compete in the track nationals. I competed in a few other track races to get a qualifying time uh, to run there. And then I just focused uh, in the fall. I, I ran mostly just road races. Uh, I, I didn't point for cross country. As I mentioned before, I did end up running the 82 cross country. So uh, I ran a Fukuoka 
there's a video of that available as well okay. <laughs> on YouTube. Uh, and then I went to uh, the following year to Nagoya, uh, 83, to run a 30K race. Uh, so, and that was it. Uh, let's see, how many times is that? One, two, yeah. So four times, two four 30Ks times. and two marathons, yeah. Okay, okay. And so, 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 it, so go ahead, John, go ahead. No, I was going to say, now during that time, so you got 82, 83. So at that point, you must have been thinking to yourself, okay, 84 Olympic trials. Was that right? Yeah, definitely. Your goal, yeah. and were you like, was there a build to that? It was. That... It was, but um, 82, you know, I came off of it strong. Uh, I was one of the top ranked. I think my time was 25th in the world that year. Same. Interestingly, in 1980, I was also had the 25th best time in the world. Uh, so, you know, I figured I was a player and I, I had, would have a chance to make the team in 84. So, yeah. But 83, unfortunately, I got some injuries and illness, uh, probably from, you know, just being so active in 82. I, I probably should have shut it down more. Um, and uh, so 83, I struggled quite a bit. And I didn't even have a qualifying time to run in the marathon trials. So in January of 84, I ran in Houston and I uh, purposely just, you know, I said 515 pace, two, uh, 217 marathon. And that's what I ran the whole way. I, I just want to have a little cushion, you know, in case I had some trouble at the end. And I ran with another runner, Mark Anderson uh, from Colorado. He was also a, a world cross country team member a couple of times so we ran together just to get to time and then uh, you know and then I spent the winter, rest of the winter training I ran well on the track I ran my PRs for 5k at 1354 at the BC relays and then I ran uh, 2824 at the Penn relays and finished fifth there um, at BC relays I was running out of my mind the first two miles I was probably could have run 1340 I just, uh, I won the race by like 20 seconds, uh, running 1354. So, and that's, and that's in April. Is that early April? Yeah. Yeah. So normally I would, I mean, for 5,000 for me, I was just like a tune up for the following weeks, 10 K. Um, so as I mentioned before, you know, not exploring more what, what I might've run on the track. I mean, I didn't have the kind of speed, you know, finishing, speed that you need to be really successful but i think i could have done pretty well so with this build that that john has, has mentioned which makes perfect sense so you're you know you're coming in you've got a you, you want to make sure you get a qualifier but you've come off of at, at you know in 82 really a really solid very solid season by any stretch of the imagination then the injuries yeah. hit psychologically how are you finding yourself coming back other than you know that I mean, are you feeling pressure on yourself? Are you feeling pressure from your sponsor? Um, what's the what's your mindset as you're beginning to then in '84, putting together the buildup, the times that right. arguably should give you confidence for whatever that next, where you really want to make your you know draw the line in the sand and go for it? Yeah, I mean, what you're touching on too is uh, there's a lot of ups and downs in athletics, so. You know, 81 was a tough year. 82 is a good year. 83 is a tough year. You know, I just didn't have a lot of luck, but you kind of make your own luck. You know, I did some dumb things maybe in retrospect. 
uh, or maybe not doing the wisest thing. Uh, so, but in 84, I was running well. Uh, in April, obviously, I was running a PR, but, um, you know, the trials weren't until the end of May. <laughs> and uh, in that interim, I started to feel it. I started to feel it. Uh, I have allergies. So I was ha uh, having trouble with allergies. I did a couple of really long training runs, like 30 miles. And um, I just, you know, I still felt like I was fit, but I, there was some kind of lethargy that just set in. Probably I was anemic and I just didn't, you know, get, you know, nowadays you might, have, if you have a coach, the, the minute you start feeling off, heart, your heart rate's going up, you know, um, and not where it should be, then they, they just give you a blood test and figure out what's going on. You know, back then, take a rest. No, I don't think so. You know, I got to do my run. Uh, so the part of the part of the animal that makes you strong is the thing that also can, can kill you. So, so yeah. So and the you, thing you, with you training is you can never just you're always at a different spot with training. So you can't just repeat what you did when you ran your best time because it just doesn't work that way. You can never just follow the training again because you're in a different place. You're older. You got a, more mileage on your body, whatever it is. So yeah, you have to always be using your head. And it, obviously uh, uh, having a coach right there is, is helpful, but it's not always easy to find that kind of relationship with someone. So 84, yeah, I, got, I went to the trial. I ended up finishing 17th and I was just felt kind of lifeless. I ran 218. And uh, yeah, I, I was thinking this is it. This might be it. I just, uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I came back. <laughs> I came back for more. And uh, I did wind up, uh, you know, taking a full-time position with New Balance, where I worked arm in arm with uh, John Gorman here, one of our uh, panelists. <laughs> and uh, we had a good time, John, right? <laughs> uh, and, a, trip, uh, a trip to Dallas was epic. <laughs> yeah, I think the trip to Dallas uh, was when I decided to go back to college and get my degree. <laughs> uh, but actually, New Balance was very good to me throughout the years. And, uh, you know, it was a good job. I talked to Jim Davis, the president, uh, before I left, and he was trying to convince me to stay. He said, you know, this is a good opportunity for you. I said, is this not for me? You know, I know. Uh, but this, this is not the kind of thing that I want to do. I thought I would get into coaching maybe. I, and I did for a while. Uh, but anyway, I went back to the running wars in 86 and, you know, Boston was looming. So I ran Boston and uh, that was the first prize money uh, race at Boston. And uh, I was living in Hopkinton at the time. So, uh, so anyway, I ended up getting sixth place. I ran a very conservative race because I wanted to make sure I came home with one of those checks. So, but I've ended up, you know, moving up from 25th place at halfway and uh, running, uh, it was 106.50 at halfway and running the 214. I finished just uh, behind uh, Arturo Barrios, who was fifth. Uh, and when he was just very young and he ran Boston for some reason, <laughs> and then he didn't run another marathon for quite a while after that but he did set the world record at 10K. So yeah, I came back 86. You know, uh, Franny and I, my, my wife, we got married in 86 and uh, moved from Hopkinton to Clinton. 
And uh, remember, you know, some things just stick with you. And, you know, it's like when I wrote the book, people said, how did you remember that stuff? And I mentioned before, when you start writing, you, you, you remember an episode and that episode uh, triggers the memory uh, for whatever reason. But I remember telling Franny, I, I, I had, was finishing my undergraduate degree and training pretty hard. And I said, I want to, I want to run 88. Uh, I want to run the Olympic trials one more time. And, you know, she was kind of looked in at me a little, you know, cross-eyed, uh, skeptical, but uh, anyway, she tolerated me for another two years of, you know, focusing on running and it worked out well. Cause I was, I was coaching, which was a part-time position. And I was um, uh, going to school. I was taking two or three courses at a time just to finish. And I ended up graduating in 1990. Anyway, 87, uh, I was another prelude. It was a build-up year. Uh, I made the World Cross Country team for the first time. And that was a good, uh, that was a good point to uh, go. I mean, I almost ran Boston in 87, but uh, uh, I didn't get invited. And I felt, sli- I felt slighted, to be honest. I was going to even run Boston in 88, but uh, instead of the marathon trial and maybe just run the track trials in the 10,000. What's that? Must have been a good feeling. Must have been a good feeling in '86, though, because I read something this morning that wrote that yeah. in the Boston Globe they used to have predictions of the you know top ten. You know, it was like Tommy Leonard, Joaquin Cannon, all the writers would right. pick the top ten. Yeah, and nobody usually wrong you except for Joaquin <laughs> Cannon. And yeah, you got yeah, he was the, the only one 10. that picked that the top ten. Yeah, yeah. Joe was always a big supporter. Yeah, you know, from way back you know, before I ever ran my first Boston. So, yeah, uh, you know, the first year having prize money, that was pretty epic. That was a, that was a good run for me. I remember running past the Elliott and all the, all, all the guys on the, on the truck, you just park a truck out there. The road was closed, a flatbed truck. And I ran by waving to the guys and uh, came back afterwards. So yeah, good times, good times. Uh, like I said, 87, uh, you know, world cross. And, uh, you know, I knew 88 was going to be it. Uh, I didn't know a hundred percent, but you know, it really depended. Right. I don't think anybody looked at me as being even a contender for the Olympic marathon team. So, but I, I thought that I could beat anybody in there on any given day. Uh, I beaten everybody in that race before you know, not in a marathon necessarily, but I competed with them. So why not, you know, why not me? <laughs> so anyway, I ran a fairly good race and finished seventh. And then uh, I don't know if I told this story already, but at the track trials where I went to run the 10,000, uh, super hot out there in Indianapolis. Well, after my heat, I went back to the hotel and I talked with a, a gentleman from uh, Japan who was putting on a race in, uh, in the North, uh, I think it was Hokkaido. And he said, uh, he said, I can give you 3000 to show and we'll have prize money. So it could be a good opportunity for you. If you want to come, just let me know. He gave me his card. So when I met Franny later, I, I told her and she said, $3,000, I'll give you $3,000 to stay home. And so that's what I knew. You know, People ask me, how did you know, you know, it was a good time to call it quits? And I said, well, 
that pretty much decided it right there. Sure, sure. Yeah. Ron, you, Ron, you had a question. Yeah, Haji, um, you know, you talked about the good good times uh, associated with the Elliot. Uh, I know in your book you do cover um, talking about, you know, the Elliot uh, New Year's Day run. I know the New Year's Day run for a lot yeah. of the folks back in that era. It was a really fun time. And there were various iterations of that. Uh, you want to talk about that, I guess, the, the, the event that used to go down to situate and then... Yeah, I think... Um... I think that that run, you know, it was one of the things that kind of encapsulated what Boston was like as a running community back then. How it was kind of a special place. In 1976, I was a student at uh, University of Lowell. My teammate Vinny Fleming was uh, living, you know, he he was also a student there, and uh, he was uh, down in Jamaica Plain. And uh, he called me on New Year's Eve. I was just about to head out with my friends from Lowell. He said, Haji, there's a, there's a run tomorrow. Tommy's, Tommy got this run together. They're going to run from the Elliott down to Situate. I said, what? He said, yeah, it's about 20, 25 miles or something. He said, it's going to be a great time. you know. And if you don't come, you're going to miss a great party. I said, well, maybe. I said, if I'm there fine. If I'm not, you know what to do. Just uh, So anyway, I, I got up the next morning and went down to Boston. I was one of the first ones at the Elliott. So I had coffee with Tommy. And Tommy Leonard, by the way, I first met him in 1974 at the Amherst 10 mile race out in Western Mass. And the two things he said, he said, you got to come to the Elliott and you have to run the Falmouth Road Race. So... Uh, but Tommy was always cooking up stuff like this. So him and my later mentor and, and my boss, when I worked at the runnery, a running shoe store in Hanover, uh, Sharpless Jones, uh, we ran to Sharpless's parents' house in Situate, and they had a traditional party. And so the first year there was, was 76. I mean, Tommy had done it on his own the year before. I think he hopped in a cab a few times on the way, but, uh, so we did it. It was Bill Rogers, myself, Vinnie Fleming, Scotty and Kenny Graham. It was just a handful of us that did it, you know, and, and Sharpless and Tommy kept hopping in and out of cabs and giving us uh, refreshments on the way. But it, it um, you know, it became a thing. So the next couple of years, it was, uh, I don't know, it went on for maybe 10 years. Uh, and then later it morphed into this run uh, from Wellesley, Mikey Wellesley, uh, into the Elliott. And I was living in Hopkinton at that time. So I used to run it right from home. So I'd run the full marathon course. I know that uh, Ron, uh, Pat Galuli uh, came and joined us one year. Uh, just a handful of us did that crazy thing. So, so um, yeah, they, it was really a, a good time for runners. Um, and uh, of course, professional running was right around the corner. <laughs> just, it, was, it was a long corner to get to. And even today, uh, professional running isn't quite what uh, what we thought it might be. So, so, so Bob, um, you know, help us with that transition. You, you know, there's a very clear marker laid down in 1986 when money made its appearance at yeah. Boston, at least for the first time. In Boston, you had, right? It had and, been around for a while, but Boston being the last bastion of amateurism. Well, and you, you had and to you, drag them. 
Yeah, Go and ahead. you had, you know, and we've mentioned TAC, the Athletics Congress, for those who are wondering what that term means. And you had the advent in the mid 80s and, and later 80s with the, you know, uh, TAC trust funds, which right. is kind of the kind of that intermediate step from being direct payment, uh, you know, professionalism. Help, help us, you know, what was your sense of the undercurrent? I mean, so you talked about, again, the BAA and the marathon being the last bastion of amateurism. You've got the national governing body, you know, making slow inroads yeah. towards it. Give us a little well, was, slice, uh, a little sense. Of course, that was a thing that um, the governing body always kept holding over the athletes, you know, that they could disqualify you from competition. So they, they uh, had a lot of fear as well. Because other countries around the world, a lot of them were, their, their athletics was supported by the government. So they, they didn't, those countries didn't necessarily want to see professionalism either. But their athletes were really professionals because they were supported as long as they were competing well by the government. So, um, so this tech trust was kind of an in-between thing. So the way it was supposed to work was I, I used the Bank of Boulder. There were a handful of banks I guess you could have used any bank. I'm not sure. And uh, if I won prize money, uh, I sent the check to the Bank of Boulder and uh, they deposited my account. And then I could only use the money. I had to fill out, you know, uh, an informational form on what I was using the money for because it was supposed to only be used for living expenses. <laughs> I'm not sure they had a list of what those expenses were supposed to be. But when I bought a house, I took everything that I had in there out. And I was just talking to Bill Rogers a couple of days ago, and I asked him, I said, which bank did you use with the TAC Trust? He said, I didn't use any bank. I never put any of my money in that TAC Trust. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and Frank Shorter is probably the same. You know, mm -hmm. Frank was actually one of the people who helped to create the TAC Trust. But the big breakthrough race was uh, in 1981 at the Cascade Runoff in Oregon. Okay. Uh, and they actually did... Uh, try to prohibit some runners from competing after that race. It was so a long struggle and, and the tax trust system broke down. It was just a laundering system for the money, really. Yeah. 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 So, so it, it, in other words, it was kind of like the latest iteration of the same kind of issues that Prefontaine had been fighting, you know, kind of dueling with the AAU and, and right. all of that. It was just continuing on. That's uh, right. This yeah. So what did you, so, so then when did the, when did the, in your opinion, when did the dam really break on this? And we get to something that's more or less where we are today. Well, there were some races. Um, Jordash Jeans put on a couple of pro racers, and they were just openly pro. They, they, and Tom Fleming actually won the Los Angeles version uh, of the Jordash. He wasn't going to, you know, he wasn't going to take part in any kind of sham, you know, uh, TAC system. So he ended up getting banned for a while. It's just mind-boggling. Amateurism as an idea is just mind-boggling anyway. I mean, um, there's a great book uh, called The Ghost Runner. Um, and uh, it follows the career of this one guy. He was, uh, I'll come up with this name momentarily. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, Grant? Uh, or yes. Garant, Garant or yeah. Garant or something like that. Yeah, I have this book right around the corner here. I'll go have to grab it. <laughs> but in any case, what happened to him was he boxed in a few uh, tournaments as an athlete in, in the UK. 
And uh, he made, you know, like a total of $8 or something. And when he went to get his uh, uh, BAAB card so he could compete in, in athletics, there was a question on the forum about being a professional. And if he hadn't said anything, he probably would have been fine. But he mentioned this, you know, boxing, you know, $8. And they said no. And he begged. He did everything that you could possibly do. So he started competing in races. Uh, he just would jump in, you know, and he was a really good runner. He potentially could have made uh, the Olympic team in the marathon. John Tarrant is his name. T-A-R-R-A-N-T. If you want to read a fascinating book about that era, uh, John Tarrant, he's the poster boy to me of amateurism and how it just would, will never work, would never work, you know, because the, uh, the sport when it started out was for the aristocrats, you know, so, you know, if you had to work as a plumber or something, if you look at the winners of the Boston Marathon, you had Brick Layer, Bill Kennedy, you know, you had school teachers, uh, it was just a long haul. And I think today, uh, you know, you have a, about a tenth of 1% of that athletes out there who could really be noted to be professionals in their sport. And they're not making the kind of money that a professional athlete would really, you know, make. So I think it's a failure of the governing bodies and also like the marathon majors, the, the leaders in the sport because the sport, the sport has morphed into this parade of, um, you know, 30,000, 40,000 runners, uh, a lot of them raising money for charities, but the, the race is pulling in, you know, two, $300 a, a piece on these, on these guys. So they just, they, they have enough elite runners to kind of make their, their, their race credible as a race and everything else isn't really about racing. Uh, so I, you could never foresee that happening back in our time. I, I could never see that happening. I always thought people, you know, if they want to run an elite marathon, they should have a qualifying time that's very strict, kind of like Fukuoka with the 230. I mean, yep. you yep. know, you wouldn't expect to play the U.S. Open unless you, you know, were of that rank, right? So there should be a pro kind of league, and there's plenty of marathons that everyone could run. But of course, yeah. they all want to run the traditionally. I mean, you want to run Boston, so right, right. Anyway, that's just a few thoughts on that. I so so circling back a little bit because money is involved in it, and, and you mentioned the name Jordash in L.A. and 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 Tom Fleming. Ron, did you have a question or, or a, you know a, a segment uh, that you wanted to kind of touch on related to Tom? Yeah, I know I did. Um... Actually, I read Joe Martino's book. I can't remember the name of the title of the book, but right. he did. He he was quite friendly with Tom Fleming. He was, yeah. And yeah. Um, I, know I just you saw him the too. other night. Yeah. Yeah, I saw that on Facebook. Yeah. And uh, uh, actually, I think uh, there's a picture of me running at Holyoke with him uh, right behind me. Uh, I never met him, but I did read his book. It was quite good. Uh, but he talked about Tom Flynn. I mean, and he was in my mind, I never met him personally, but I've seen him at races. Yeah. He seemed like quite a character for the time. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, Tom had one of those personalities. He was kind of pure uh, New Jersey <laughs> and he uh, had one of the first uh, running stores. He had a uh, Tom Fleming's running room uh, down there in New Jersey. And, he did a lot to promote himself in the sport, like, a, you know, kind of like a professional. Uh, 
and he was friendly with uh, Pre and Marty Macquarie and all the track athletes too. He actually ran quite well in cross country and track. Uh, became, you know, but his biggest goal and he, the, his biggest love was Boston Marathon. And he finished second a couple of times and he really, that was his life goal. So uh, I got to know him well in the winter of 80 when I was training in Florida with him uh, for about five or six weeks. And uh, yeah, he's a relentless guy. Um, we had a lot of fun you know, together. So, and then we traveled to Japan to run to Ome. It was just a lot of camaraderie between competitors. You know, we were all looking out for each other because uh, we knew nobody in the sport was going to be looking out for us. So, so um, you know, we're, we're getting short, believe it or not, after another um, great hour or now almost two hours of conversation. And so unfortunately, we're probably going to have to, you know, come down to a final couple of questions. And I guess given the breadth of what you did during your career, Bob. Um, if you had to look back at yourself then and, and look forward to now, leaving aside the shoes, leaving aside the technology and all of that, um, what runners on the, the grand stage today would you be interested in sitting down and having a beer with or having lunch with or having dinner with? You know, who, who, would, who would be the characters that you would like to learn a little bit more about what makes them tick. All of them. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, ben True. I've never met Ben True. He seems like an interesting character. You know, I am. Um... Kipchoge? Yeah, of course. Kipchoge. Yeah. Yeah. He's really the world's most interesting man. Uh, for no, for, for he those is... you... He is interesting uh, if you if you read about him, his uh, life. He's mm -hmm. very uh, focused. He takes things, you know. He he's a learned person, very you know intellectual type of guy, I think, and uh, psychology uh, uh, psychologically very strong. Yeah, I love that. I yeah, of course, yeah, would like to meet him. Okay, all right. Uh, but yeah, this uh, I do I do follow the sport pretty closely, and uh, uh, you know I went to the Olympic trials in Eugene and got to meet you know after each competition the Olympians uh, would go to the local pub and uh, they'd be introduced and they'd walk around and get for photo ops and sign autographs and everything. So I actually got to meet a lot of athletes that you wouldn't, you know, wouldn't normally get to meet. So no, that's great. It was that's a lot great. of fun. Yeah. So um, we are probably again, as we, as I was saying, we're we're getting close to the end of the hour here. We've learned about the Ghost Runner, which was a, that's a new one uh, for me, and literally back in the early days of amateurism and and yeah, uh, John Tarrant, fascinating look. Yeah. Uh, so, so a couple titles there. We've got uh, Ron mentioned the other uh, another title, you know, connected with Tom Fleming. Yeah, Joe Martino's um, book is called On the Run. On the Run, and okay. uh, it, it is. Um, it, and this may not even be a running question. Well, maybe it is. Aside from your book, what's the most recent running related book that you've read and that you would recommend uh, for those interested in the sport? Oh, there's a great one called Wannabe Distance God. Yeah, it's written by Tim Tays, who uh, went to Kansas uh, mm -hmm. under Coach Bob Timmons. So he would have been in, in 
late 70s, 80s. Okay. Uh, okay. There's some other works of fiction. There's one called The River Road. Mm -hmm. Can't remember the author's name, but I believe he's the coach of the Team Minnesota okay. group. Right. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there's this, this uh, you know, I have a little bibliography actually on my website. Okay. It's not too up to date. Good. Bob, should we be thinking that there will be a uh, Tales of the Times 2 or another title coming from under the pen of Bob Hodge or some pseudonym? Uh, could be. I don't know. Um, I'm going to keep writing for sure. So whether there's another book uh, in the works, there's nothing in the works at the moment, really. I'm trying to write something fiction, but I'm not very good at it. So, but uh, it's it's just a mental health exercise, I think. <laughs> uh, just the writing, and it's a way to stay in touch with friends and everything. So, we have been on quite a journey for the last 90 uh, minutes or so over the last two weeks of a very in-depth, eclectic and wide-ranging conversation with New England legend, uh, Bob Hodge. Bob, it's been, it's been great to have you on the show. And even now after that, you know, a long amount of time here on the podcast, I still think we could have probably kept on going, but we may have to forestall that for maybe the next, the next book. Um, yeah. something, something along those lines, or maybe an in-person appearance at an upcoming event, uh, maybe the cherry tree or something like that in the not so distant uh, future. I see some head nodding on that score. Absolutely. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Uh, but in any event, it's been a real pleasure. Um, and on behalf of John Gorman and Ron Galuli, Bob Hodge, thank you for joining us and look forward to seeing you on the roads again or in a bar near you. I'm Grant Wade. Right, guys. Thanks. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks, Thank Hodge. You.